Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is a new episode of a tech policy podcast, and I have a very special episode for our listeners. We're going to talk about the it girl of tech policy, a popular concept of information fiduciaries. And joining us is the person who's coined the term, Professor Jack Balkin. Professor Balkin needs no introduction, but let me name a few of his titles. He's Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at Yale Law School. He's the founder and director of a Yale Information Society project, and also he directs the Knight Law and Media Program and the Abrams Institute for Free Expression at Yale Law School. Professor Balkin is one of the leading constitutional scholars in the country, and on a personal note, he's the reason I ended up in tech policy, although he's not responsible for anything I do in this space. Um, today, the tables have turned, and I'm asking Professor Balkin questions for once. Thank you for coming to DC and joining us. It's great to be here. And that's not it. I have not one, but two all-star experts joining us today. Uh, we also have Mike Godwin the first staff counsel of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the creator of a world-famous Godwin's Law, also a general counsel of Wikimedia Foundation, and currently general counsel and director of innovation and policy at the R Street Institute. Last month, Mike was elected to the Internet Society Board. Mike, congratulations and welcome. Uh, thank you. And let me just clarify, I'm actually a senior fellow at uh, R Street now. I've graduated to senior fellow. Oh. No, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, fun to be here. All right, let's dive in. Professor Balkin, uh, can you tell our listeners who haven't heard if they've lived in a bunker for the last few years uh, about information fiduciaries and what that concept is about? Sure, I'd be happy to. Here's the big idea. The big idea is that if you think about digital companies, and I'm not just thinking about social media companies, but any company whose business model relies on collecting large amounts of, of information about you, including information you don't even know you're giving up, uh, if you think about how the new world of capitalism works, basically you get a certain set of asymmetries that come out of it. One is an asymmetry of of knowledge, that is the companies know an enormous about about you, but you know nothing about them or their internal operations. The second is an asymmetry of transparency. That is to say, you are transparent to them. They can observe everything that you're doing. They know your location. They know where you're going. They even know, they can even record keystrokes, things like that. Uh, you're, they're a black box to you, essentially. They're not transparent. So these two asymmetries of, of information, knowledge, and transparency produce a third asymmetry. And this is the asymmetry of power. They have an enormous amount of power over you. You have no power over them. You can do very little to affect them or their businesses. And so generally speaking, when you get these kinds of asymmetries of knowledge and information that produce asymmetries of power, you have a real problem. You've got to trust this company, this business, not to treat you badly, not to betray your trust. And this basic idea that you're in a position where you're vulnerable and you have to hope that this very powerful company that you know nothing about will not betray you is actually a very familiar idea in the law. It goes all the way back to the beginnings of the common law. And it's an idea that the common law has called a, a situation where that person is a fiduciary toward you. And because the relationship arises out of the collection and analysis and use of information about you, we say this person is an information fiduciary. The oldest ideas are examples of people who basically were uh, held things in trust and baileys. Then later it becomes people who will manage estates. Then later it's professionals like lawyers and doctors. And in the 21st century, I'm adapting this concept of the fiduciary to the big digital companies that have an enormous say over our lives. I have a question. What would be the difference and why um, we 
put such an accent on technology companies if we think about banks, insurance companies, um, different you know financial institutions that have as much, or maybe some health institutions that have as much information about us and our lives, um, or maybe a little different, but it might be a different industry, but at the same time, the power of, in general, corporate America, the power of corporate America over Americans is extreme. Uh, why are you putting such an emphasis on the technology? Well, uh, you should understand, by the way, that if, if somebody manages your estate in a bank, they also have duties. So it's not just that it's not just technology companies. This idea is very old and it applies to many different kinds of businesses. But you're right that something has changed. What has changed is what uh, Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. That is, a capitalism that's based on the idea that the way to uh, create demand and guarantee purchases of products and to make money now is to get as much information as possible about consumers and use that not only to surveil them, but also basically to push them in one direction rather than another. This is now a really, really important source of wealth. And the more data you have, the more you can aggregate, and therefore, the more power you have. Another thing that's really interesting about this new world of surveillance capitalism is that in this world, everybody is a member of the Stasi, by which I mean everybody is constantly informing on everybody else whether they want to or not. In other words, if I call Mike on the phone company will have the contact information between me and Mike. I don't mean to squeal on Mike, but I am. If Mike has uh, characteristics that are all similar to mine, any information that they find out about me can be used to predict what Mike will do. The idea is to create a kind of capitalism that moves towards uh, effective omniscience and the ability to predict better and better what people will do so that people can make more and more money off of it. That's what's new in our world. Mike, uh, you uh, have just published a book that's kind of taking these ideas and taking them a little further into the policy debates that are going on in the tech world in DC right now. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Sure, and, and let me just uh, be a little. Uh, let me just add a little bit to what Jack said because I think it's kind of uh, useful to build on that. One of them, one of the ideas that I ha have had that have been kind of haunted by is the fact that you know I, I carry an iPhone. Other people have different kinds of smartphones, and I've realized at some point. Uh, a few years back that whoever had my iPhone had access to my iPhone actually may know more about me than I know about myself. Now, that's an odd thing to abruptly realize. And, and, and then it, this integrated quite well with, I think, what Jack, Jack has been talking about with information uh, fiduciaries. Uh, what I had noticed over the past five years, so it predates the 2016 uh, electoral uh, uh, disruptions and dysfunctions, uh, whatever those, whatever we think those are, um, but I noticed that there had been a, a, a kind of a, a recognition or a kind of a change in the atmosphere in the way uh, the public were, was talking about tech platforms and tech companies generally. And I wondered, and I was really interested in that because I'd worked on uh, First Amendment issues and privacy issues on the internet space for a long time, for decades, in fact. And uh, when I started out, people were kind of upbeat. It was very early Wired magazine. People were kind of happy about all the things that were changing. And now, 
abruptly we were having a kind of what we now call a tech clash, certainly a backlash of feeling. And so I ended up writing a bunch of essays as I was exploring each of these issues. And I would say, and I noticed that people had many different ideas. A lot of them were uninterrogated or unanalyzed about the harms that uh, tech companies were doing uh, and and about remedies. They also had some ideas about what they wanted to fix. So sometimes they wanted the companies to censor more. Sometimes they want them to censor less. Uh, Typically, they want them to censor the other guys more, censor me less. That's quite a a common pattern. But also, um, I was also struck in the same period by the fact that our government, uh, our, our government sometimes had an antagonistic relationship towards tech companies. In particular, the uh, the government's uh, uh, demand that Apple, the government's demand that Apple uh, uh, open up iPhones on demand, you know, or or. or uh, uh, crack uh, the security on iPhones on demand if the case is bad enough was kind of interesting to me because Apple tried to resist that, but Apple had no standing <laughs> to resist that. Apple uh, basically is a third, you know, to the extent that they have access to anything, they might be a third party that has to turn over evidence to the government. And so I kept trying to sort of uh, uh, get a sense of this whole landscape, and Jack's uh, scholarship was quite useful for that because in addition to the concept of information fiduciary, where there's a relationship between the the tech companies, generally speaking, and individual users, there's also uh, uh, what what Jack has called sort of free speech, the free speech triangle, or there's a triangular relationship among tech companies, the government, and users, because uh, we typically focus in policy uh, circles on some dyad of those, you know, of those, any two of those three are the way we talk about policy. But in fact, it's an ecological system in which uh, uh, relationships among any two of them may affect the third. So with that picture in mind, I ended up writing many, many essays. Uh, I hope they're interesting uh, and published this book, The Splinters of Our Discontent, which is designed to both uh, build on Jack's uh, schema and also make some policy recommendations uh, about how to go forward. So I hope that- I, I think one of the most interesting policy recommendations Recommendations. There are several in this book, but one is the idea that if somebody's your information fiduciary, so if Apple is your information fiduciary, they are not a stranger anymore. And in fact, the Fourth Amendment rules, this is actually a view I have, should be different. Uh, that is to say, you should have an expectation, a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, when the government uh, basically wants that data, which is the current rule, is that once you give to a third party, you lose, uh, they can do whatever they want, they can betray you. In fact, the government, I think, uses that, that term, the court uses that term in one of its cases. But if you're an information fiduciary, no, that's not true. They can't betray you, which means that you have a reasonable expectation of security in that data. What that means, Mike says in his book, is not only do they have a duty of security, they may actually have a duty to defend you, to defend your privacy rights when the government tries to get that data. And that's your view on the, the iPhone, right? That's absolutely right. And the same thing, and I have the same view about uh, uh, Facebook or Google or anybody else who's collected a lot of information to you uh, on you and is subject to demands from uh, government I think that they ought to be understood to have standing uh, one of the great uh, one of the great cases that uh, great uh, First Amendment freedom of association cases is uh, NAACP versus Alabama from the late 1950s uh, where NAACP didn't want to disclose to the state governments in the south who their members were uh, and and they shouldn't have to. 
uh, and, and uh, they had standing. Uh, I mean, part of this issue was their freedom of association, but another part of it was that NAACP has the has the standing to represent those individual users and say, no, we're not going to reveal your name. And that was a very exciting bit of synthesis for me uh, reading, you know, from after reading uh, uh, Jack's work. Another thing that comes to mind as you guys are discussing this is that if we apply the information fiduciary concept um, in this area, that would really expand what the Carpenter 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 decision of a Supreme Court didn't really even reach to and um, protect our uh, data that companies have from the government intervention, right, from government trying to get it without due process and needed checks and balances. So the, the idea, in other words, is that what if you take the idea of information fiduciary seriously in the Fourth Amendment context, what it means is, is that you don't have to scrap the third-party doctrine, the famous third-party doctrine that everyone's worried about. It just means that there's a threshold question, which is before we apply the third-party doctrine, is the is the company from which the government is getting the information information fiduciary with respect to their end users? If it is, then in fact, the party doctrine doesn't apply unless the end user has signed away the rights. Uh, the end user basically can say, hey, I have a reasonable expectation of privacy, even though I gave this data to a third party. How and, lo- yeah, and this will mean, by the way, that it won't, get, it won't get rid of the third party doctrine entirely, which many people are worried about, law enforcement is worried about. What it will do is it will make it more tractable. It will be an, a better doctrine. It will make more sense. It will be more just an application. How would you define the threshold? Uh, at what time would a company become information, an information fiduciary, for example? Well, if they hold a lot of data about you uh, in order to perform services for you, uh, and you've got this asymmetry of, of knowledge and asymmetry of transparency, those are the usual things we would look for to decide whether or not you're an information fiduciary. Now, Mike, there was a recent uh, story about one of the um, telephone companies losing an enormous amount of data. Right. So I, 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 what I was thinking of, actually, in the context of, let me just jump back to the Carpenter uh, case for a minute, and that's that I was asked, uh, as one is asked sometimes to write very quickly, uh, my take or my read of the, of the Carpenter case. And to me, it was quite interesting because the majority uh, in the Carpenter case is qu- clearly wrestling with the idea that third-party doctrine has gotten too broad. Uh, and they're sort of they're trying to figure out what it is, what the narrowing principle is, and I don't I don't think anybody thinks that their particular solution was hugely uh, satisfactory. But if you read the dissents uh, to, from the uh, more mostly from the more conservative ju- uh, justices, uh, what you see is they're each grappling in their own way with whether are we going to keep third party doctrine? What do we really mean by the Fourth Amendment or reasonable expectation of privacy? And uh, Justice Gorsuch, in particular, I thought was quite forward looking because he anticipates that there will be some changes, but he doesn't quite know what the answer is yet. And I and I as I read this, I said, well, I think, you know, I think uh, Jack Balkin and Jonathan Zittrain have some ideas about what that relationship looks like. And uh, so the threshold issue, I think, is not that they know everything about you. I I mean, uh, a GPS service or or an email service may know a narrow set of things about you that still describes you uh, in some ways pretty intrusively. Uh, So I don't think it's about having a complete picture of you any more than my doctor actually knows what kind of uh, books I 
like to read. You know, it just doesn't come up. But if they have a kind of uh, if they have a if you have a trust relationship uh, with these providers, with these tech platforms, it ought to be the case that you at least ask whether they have that the understanding that you share is a fiduciary understanding. And one of the things that uh, we know if we look through the history of, 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 of the development of ethical codes is that if you have a profession that adopts uh, uh, this role, it ultimately gets supported by law. That's actually what we've seen happen uh, with uh, the medical profession and with the legal profession, and to some extent, even with uh, journalists and the journalist code of ethics. And you've recently proposed for the tech companies to also um, create and kind of adopt a code of ethics of their own. Uh, what exactly would that code of ethics would cover? Would it cover uh, content moderation? Would it cover the way companies handle their data? Would it be a more high-level general guidelines of how they operate in the information space? So yeah, it would cover a lot of that. And I think that, there, I, I think that uh, building on uh, uh, what Jack and other uh, uh, scholars have done, I think it at least covers private information, but it also ought to cover content moderation because one of the issues that has emerged certainly after uh, 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 Brexit and the American elections in 2016 is the issue of uh, w- whether the platforms have wittingly or unwittingly or for profit, you know, furthered uh, uh, disinformation. Uh, I, I think that there's an obligation not to do that. Uh, I don't th- pretend that the fix is easy, but I think that there's some kind of prophylactic obligation to do that. Uh, so, and we actually want to support a legal framework that enables the platforms to engage in some kind of uh, curation and content moderation, uh, even though that's controversial. It's increasingly controversial now because, as, as I think we all know, uh, many people, certainly people who are conservative, but also people in other parts of the political spectrum are certain that the platforms are biased against them. Uh, and, and and they cite instances of, of uh, curation as proof of the bias. It's a lot of confirmation bias going on. Uh, but at least content moderation, privacy protection, there may be other things that I think fit in a, a fiduciary framework. Professor Belkin, what do you think about an idea of the tech industry self-regulating themselves through this tool? I tend to be a little bit more skeptical than Michael is on it, although I don't know if he's going to disagree with much of what I'm about to say. Um, the, the, Essentially, uh, tech companies will not change their practices significantly until their business models change. And as long as their business models exist the same way they do, they will create the following problem. Their business models will will basically encourage bad behavior on the part of various kinds of end users, and then they'll try to clean it up through their moderation policies. So they'll hire more and more moderators around the world who will be poorly paid and you know not very in not very good working conditions and and have all sorts of problems that, that health problems that come with that. But the problem is not that you need more moderators. The problem is the beginning. That is the the um, business model that creates it. So the, the fiduciary model can do some things in terms of changing the business model. It's not the only thing. I think antitrust law will play another role as well. We can talk about that later. But with respect to the fiduciary model, the idea is simply this. You might say that in order to... Um, um, in order to adhere to your fiduciary obligations to your end users, uh, there are certain kinds of manipulative tricks that you can't play on them. 
Uh, there are certain kinds of advertising that you can engage in and certain kinds of advertising that you can't engage in. And although I have toyed with the idea of making a distinction between contextual and behavioral advertising, it, it's my view that that's just that's like the first cut because, in fact, the boundaries between these two different forms of advertising are rather fuzzy and there may not be any sharp line between them. For those of the audience who don't understand the distinction, contextual means if you're in a certain location on the Internet then you'll be served ads that are based on a guess as to what you're interested in based on where you are. It's contextual. And the behavioral is, I get a lot of information about you, and regardless of whether or not where you are on the internet, I serve you ads or, or, or I, uh, I give you a feed that's based on what I know about you and what, and what I think will goose you into action. And so contextual kinds of advertising may be less troublesome than behavioral, although, as I say, one fades into the other. But the basic idea would be that a behavioral... A fiduciary model would uh, put a limit on the kinds of manipulative tricks that so, you could engage in. So let me just build on that, and that's that. Uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, in uh, you know um, uh, uh, Randall Rothenberg is uh, is the CEO of the uh, of the uh, IAB, the the advertising uh, trade organization, and he gave a speech uh, about why advertisers should speak as, as an industry on the issue of manipulative advertising. Um, and, and that's been influential in my thinking. But the thing that I think actually made the most difference to me is uh, because in another life I was a student, a philosophy student, is uh, Wittgenstein's idea of a private language, which is that you have to, you can't really have this internal set of rules that, you know, you could change all the time. That's not really a language. Language in some sense has to be external to you. I think that's true about ethics too. So that even if I go to a lawyer who may not be the best lawyer in the world, I have an expectation that that lawyer has certain ethical obligations to me and that if he does or she does not meet those ethical obligations, then I have a grievance. I have a legitimate grievance. And the same thing is true with doctors. So the so the fix, I think, is, and, and, and I'm not and I want to be really clear. I don't think self-regulate. I want to be very clear on this point. Self-regulation within a company is not enough. If it doesn't matter if Facebook is a totally reformed uh, tech platform, that is inadequate because the shared understanding about what the ethical obligations has to be bigger than any company and has to be shared and it has to be communicated with a great deal of transparency to the general public as well as to government. And I want to see that happen. Um, so that's sort of some of the... Uh, uh, so, so to come back to the idea of regulation, I think that what we see in uh, other professions that have fiduciary obligations is that uh, even if they've adopted, even if the profession has adopted the, the, the code of ethics voluntarily, it ends up getting buttressed by law and regulation uh, so that, you know, you can actually sue people from malpractice or even, uh, you know, you can disbar people and do all the things that you, you know, remove licenses and so on uh, for doctors. And, and, and so I think that there's uh, a synthetic role that ultimately uh, uh, arises between what government can do and what the professions uh, and what the fiduciaries can do. If we draw a line and have an analogy between fiduciary duties that already exist and the information fiduciary, that would be certain duties that the tech 
company's tech world will adopt, like duty of care? There are three basic duties that come with this. One is you have a duty of care, so that's to keep the data safe and also not to give the data out to people who are untrustworthy. You have a duty of confidentiality, so you have to uh, maintain the duty, uh, the data, and not disclose it to others. And if and the extent you disclose it to anybody others, the duties run with the data. That is, you can't just get around your duties by handing it off to a fly-by-night organization that doesn't uh, uh, take on the same duties that you do. And the third was the one that we've just been talking about, the duty of loyalty, which is that you have a duty to make sure that you don't betray the trust of uh, your end users. And when you manipulate your end users, uh, then you are betraying their trust. Uh, the, the Facebook scandals, one of the things that's interesting about the Facebook scandals is they're like a textbook example. If, if, if there was one for what not to do from the standpoint of the duty of care, the duty of confidentiality, and the duty of loyalty. And indeed, at one point, with respect to Cambridge Analytica, um, Mark Zuckerberg just said, uh, you know, if this is what we've done, it's a breach of trust. And I agree with him. That's exactly what the problem was in these scandals. It's been a breach of trust between Facebook and its end users. So the question is, I think the question then arises, what how, what do you do to restore trust? Um, now, I mean, there are lots of remedies that don't have anything to do with restoring trust. Maybe you think antitrust is a remedy. Maybe Facebook needs to be broken up. And, I, and we're, gonna, we're perfectly willing, I think, to talk about all those issues. But I think the, you know, if, if you put yourself in the position of, uh, of, of the uh, directors of uh, Facebook or Twitter or Google, and you say, well, what is the thing that we need to do to restore trust? And I think you have to do what Microsoft did in another context, uh, uh, which is embrace and extend. You have to embrace the criticisms and say, we're not only going to answer the criticisms, but we're going to answer problems that you haven't even thought of yet because we're going to adopt a more comprehensive a code of ethical treatment of our users. And it's going to include a lot of obligations between us and you. And, and, and that, to me, I think is very exciting because it, it, it fits back into the picture of uh, technological advance that, that I have had and that Jack at various times has had, which is basically that this stuff is ultimately positive for democracy. But the way you you do it is not by laissez-faire. You have to have you have to have uh, the companies be proactive and be better towards users, and you have to possibly have uh, a, a legal and regulatory uh, uh, framework to reinforce that. The digital era hasn't been around for that long, and obviously we're talking about these ideas, we're thinking through what the future of our society should be in this information space. However, we have people who work at agencies who listen to us, we have staffers who listen to us. They want policy solutions now. What would be the enforcement like with these duties and if we adopt this concept? Because one might say, well, the duty of loyalty or the duty of care, it all sounds great, but on practice, should I just walk on eggshells and not know what I'm doing? Should I move fast, break things, and then be punished for it? Uh, so there are several ways of thinking about this, but we might proceed by analogy to the antitrust laws. The antitrust laws were written in terms of broad principles, which were then handed over to courts and then later uh, administrative agencies to enforce. We're moving at a much faster clip. I think it would be better 
uh, at least from the standpoint of um, uh, enforcement, to do something like the following. I'm, I'm very flexible about how to do it. Uh, one possibility is either create a new agency that's basically going to be devoted to these issues or hand it over to the FTC. The problem is the FTC ha- is limited in the kinds of things it can do. And so many people think the FTC isn't the right home for it. But uh, I'm agnostic on this. There are other people in Washington who know this better than I do. But suppose we just start a new industry, uh, a new agency instead of the FTC. What you should do is you should basically get, hand them uh, over these basic principles and say, start drafting rules. Uh, start drafting rules, uh, engage in uh, rulemaking, but also you should be able to have enforcement power. So not only rulemaking power, but also enforcement power. And my view is that you don't cut off the ability of state attorney generals to bring lawsuits under the state under the federal statute. That is, state attorney generals have a really important role to play in this story, and so they should be involved too. What that means then is that you have three different ways of approaching the problem. One is litigation through state attorney generals. The second is enforcement actions by the agency itself, and the third is rulemaking by the agency. And I think that within a relatively short period of time, if you have these three actors all working on the problem, you're going to get a much more coherent and um, um, a plausible code of conduct, which then can be uh, handed over to uh, the uh, corporate counsel at these corporations for uh, purposes of um, making sure they comply. Basically, what we really want is we want compliance. Um, uh, litigation is something you do when compliance fails, but what you really want is a set of rules that allow corporate counsel to comply so that they don't get into scrapes like they're currently getting into. So we've certainly had, and we've, there's some members of Congress who have, you know, certainly have reached out to me or to other people who are working on this stuff and, and asked, you know, what what would you recommend if you were writing, a, you know, a fidu- information fiduciary uh, 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 obligation into the law, what would that look like? Senator Schatz, I know. Uh, and as you may know, has, uh, has has reached out to different people on this issue. I think that what what the companies should do, because the companies have to recognize that the betrayal of trust is a proactive problem that they really need to proactively address and not wait for a legislative or regulatory fix. They need to uh, 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 they need to host forums. They need to invite opinions. There needs to be, uh, dare I say it, multi-stakeholderism. Uh, I'm I'm interested in uh, attacking this, this set of issues on many several fronts because I believe that holistically we're going to see uh, um, if you it, as we learn from other multi-stakeholder fo- forums what we learn is that when these issues surface people begin to think comprehensively about what codes of ethics ought to look like and then there ought to be ideally colloquy dialogue among the stakeholders that, about about what this should look like the the, the codes of legal ethics were not written in stone. They did not arrive from Zeus's brow in complete form. They've all been modified over the years. And I think what we need to do is begin uh, by saying everybody has a role to play to make this stuff work. Are you worried at all uh, that if we start doing things like this, creating an agency, you know, implementing new duties, that the incumbents will be able to comply and, as you said, compliance is a key, and just kind of continue their market dominance, whereas that might um, lower the, I mean, put higher the barrier of entry for new innovation and for new tech companies who right. are maybe thinking through right. 
the next, like the next Facebook, the yeah. next Google. So one way of doing that is to basically create a threshold. If you're a certain size, then uh, fiduciary obligations apply to you. Uh, if if you're still small, uh, then you get some uh, you more leeway, and you can basically create a tiered system. The other thing you can do is antitrust, which I'd be happy to talk about. But I just want to point out that you need more than one tool in the toolkit to solve these problems. Uh, the simple application of the concept of information fiduciaries by itself is not going to solve all the problems. So I think I, I, I think that uh, we you know I've talked about this in the context of the French uh, proposal. As you know, there's been this dialogue between the French government and Facebook about what the model uh, framework should look like. And and I think the French have sort of, in principle, said, well, it ought to apply to businesses of a certain size. But then who knows what that threshold is, and and what does it mean if you're a player below that threshold? And maybe you know you have perverse incentives to stay below the threshold. If it's a hundred million, maybe I just have my ninety million user base and and work with that but I think that I think that um, what I would like to see happen and I think it's possible to do this is to have a, a set of rules and, and, and a framework that apply up and down you know the scale uh, just as it does with attorneys so you know small attorneys are no more free uh, to violate your uh, you know your their fiduciary duty to you than than big firms are and I think that to the extent that we can come up with rules that scale down for market entrance that is optimal because we absolutely want to be aware that uh, cost of compliance can deter competition and can, and create barriers to entry and we don't want to do that we would like the dynamism of this uh, technical uh, innovative space to continue so we've been teasing antitrust let's talk about antitrust uh, in the 2020 presidential cycle, antitrust and breaking up big tech companies is definitely going to be one of the main uh, issues talked about. And depending on the politician, uh, they're going to address it from different angles. There's definitely an angle of these companies are too big. They're regulating our speech. I'm putting speech in air quotes. Uh, there's definitely an angle of they just have too much data, you know, the privacy angle. And then there's an angle of they just are so big and Amazon controls so much of an e-commerce market and just in general, this little sub-markets that the old antitrust laws can't keep up and can't apply to this model. Uh, Lena Hahn and David uh, Posen with uh, Columbia Law currently, I believe, uh, they have written an article criticizing Professor Balkin's uh, idea and saying that if we adopt his, you know, framework, it would be impossible for us to then um, have alternative avenues for public intervention, such as enforcing anti-monopoly policies. Um, Professor Wilkin, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, so, Alina uh, is, is a former student of mine. David is a mentee of mine. They're wonderful people. They're very smart, and uh, and I like them a great deal. Uh, they uh, make a greater disagreement between me and them than really exists, I want to say. And here's one thing we do agree on. One thing we do agree on is you can't simply rely on consumer protection and privacy policy to solve current problems. Um, you have to have antitrust. Um, and I actually think that the way to think about antitrust is a little different than the way that it's currently being bandied about in public discourse. Um, th think about it in two steps. First of all, um, if you think that the problem that we're aiming at is the bad incentives created by the business models, it's not clear that the correct model is breaking up the companies, although there are advantage to that, which I'll get in a second. It's rather, it's breaking up the vertical integration of the companies. That is, the companies collect data and then they become essentially advertising brokers, advertising networks. And they are now in a situation where they're both the 
the person who serves the ads, and they're also the advertising uh, broker who basically places the ads. And these two functions can be separated and should be separated. In fact, if you think about Don Draper in, in Mad Men, Don Draper was an advertising broker. His advertising agency was a two-sided market. It faced people who wanted to uh, uh, buy ads, and then he also dealt with publications who served them. We would now say served the ads. And Facebook has collapsed that so that there's no Don Draper anymore. Uh, a, a advertising I'm sorry, an antitrust solution would in fact break apart. And the reason why is if Facebook doesn't control the ad brokerage, uh, it will have a very different way of making money. Its business model will change and some of the bad behavior will go away. Not all of it, I just want to point out. And you might get a healthy competition between different kinds of ad brokers. So that's really crucial. The problem with existing antitrust law is that it's organized around a concept of consumer welfare, which greatly limits it. And it's not surprising that antitrust enforcement has been moribund uh, for a long time. There's another vision of antitrust, though, which I think Lena shares with me, uh, and which also you see to a certain extent in the FCC uh, media concentration policy, although that too has, has been limited uh, of late. And that's the idea that the purpose of antitrust and competition policy more generally, not just antitrust, but competition policy is pro-democracy. That is the purpose of these pro-competition policies is to recognize the link between concentration of capital and their bad effects on democracy, self-rule. And so the FCC's original media concentration policies were all about the promotion of democracy by providing diverse and antagonistic sources of information, to use Hugo Black's famous words. Uh, and the same thing could be done again. You don't actually need to use the antitrust laws, the current ones we have. You don't need to use the, the Sherman Act. You could pass a separate, different pro-competition law whose focus was not consumer welfare, but rather democracy. It would be perfectly constitutional under the First Amendment. That's what Hugo Black points out in Associated Press. Uh, and in fact, it could get at what the real problem is. So, so I, I just love all that because I think that's exactly uh, right. You can't the the thing that has the thing that uh, has uh, that I've stumbled over when I've encountered antitrust arguments uh, uh, in relation to social media is I say no, I I'm not. I'm agnostic about whether a company is too big. I don't really care about that so much. What I care about is how, what's the connection between the remedy that you're proposing and the and the good result that you're trying to get. And quite often there really isn't one. Uh, so and, and and it might actually be perverse. So for example, let's say, and I don't know that anyone's really suggesting this, but let's say Facebook is broken up into a bunch of baby books, you know, a bunch of baby Facebooks um, that somehow share data. Well, you know. Actually, Mark Zuckerberg has said, you know, that, uh, and I believe him, that he wants to promote uh, uh, more data portability. But interestingly, data portability uh, has some downsides to it. For, for example, you know, if you have data that are easily reinstantiated on alternative platforms or competitive platforms, it actually makes your data in some ways less secure because it's a little more portable. There's a security issue there. Uh, so, so I always ask, what what is the remedy that you want? And how do you get there? I I think that. Uh, 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 democracy is a key value, and I think we really do need to seriously think about uh, how how the concentration of uh, control of the intermediate, you know, the control in, in the inter in the social networking market, and maybe in search, and maybe in some other things, how that may be affecting 
uh, how that may be affecting democracy. Maybe it does. And I'm, I'm perfectly willing to have that discussion. Uh, and then I think in addition, of course, to, uh, you know, what Justice Black said about, you know, what you can do under the First Amendment. I mean, I think the commerce power also absolutely reaches uh, this stuff. Congress in, the, in Congress in its regulation of commerce can absolutely decide that it wants to regulate commerce in pro-democratic ways. All right. Well, that's a very um, radical, if you ask me, concept that I will let our listeners um, read about more and just kind of think through, because that is a totally new framework to think about antitrust. And my my understanding is if we do that and if we walk away from consumer welfare uh, standard, that wouldn't only affect tech world and the tech markets, but also send shockwaves through the whole economy. Sure. And maybe, and maybe, uh, so I, I want to say with regard to just one other thing with regard to consumer benefit, and that's this, you know, in some ways, if Facebook were broken up, now I have a lot of, I have a big social network on Facebook, if it were broken up in any way, it might actually decrease my consumer benefit, right? Because somehow it's become harder for me to reach out to do my own little private broadcast or the things that I do on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, if those services are broken up. So, uh, but but we know that we know that consumer benefit has been really hard because these services are mostly free, uh, and nobody wants. You know, I think. Uh, uh, um, Roger McNamee has suggested that it go to a subscription service, which I think is hugely anti-democratic for, I think... St- and, and it won't stop data collection. And it won't stop data collection. It's, you know, it's hugely harmful in, in, on multiple dimensions. Um, I, I think that another theory about how we want to regulate this stuff is fine. And I, I will add this, which is that, you know, in the first wave in the 90s of optimism about how we're going to regulate Internet services, we anticipated and had no... We anticipated there would be so many different platforms and voices that competition and democracy would sort of sort themselves out. And none of us really, I mean, none of us really anticipated that we were going to have these hugely market dominant uh, uh, social media platforms and search platforms. I think we were surprised by that. And we have to think about how we want to respond to that. So I just want to say a little bit about content moderation and how it relates to antitrust. What we would ideally like is we wouldn't want the largest player, let's say Facebook, to buy up all the potential competitors when they're still small and they have different uh, affordances. Uh, so Facebook now owns WhatsApp and it owns Instagram. These aren't the same kind of affordances. You don't communicate in the same way. They have slightly different cultures to them. It would be great if we had lots and lots and lots of different uh, applications. Uh, and one advantage of antitrust policy here would be to create many, many different kinds of applications. This will not necessarily create the kind of cacophony or, or network effects, this is the other problem, that people are worried about. Because right now, people belong to multiple uh, uh, services. And they probably would continue to belong to multiple services uh, over time. And there would be some degree of, of uh, movement of ideas between the different services. But the most important reason, I think, aside from uh, innovation, to make sure that you have multiple players is the following. Many conservatives are now worried that a large uh, worldwide organization that is basically focused on applying community uh, standards worldwide is going to be at their expense. They... um, if you think about what worldwide standards are, and you compare that to the free speech views of American conservatives, I think they have some reason to be concerned, although I think that many of the stories uh, that people are, are spreading around are, in fact, not really 
that important. But in the larger point, conservatives might say, you know, our values about free speech really are different than the sort of median value of countries around the world. Okay, fine. Then I think it's important that there be lots and lots and lots of different social media companies so that there are you can choose which set of moderation policies you like. This goes back to a very old idea in internet law. It's like one of the first ideas in internet law. And one of the things that any trust law can do for us is they can actually help us realize this very old idea. And I think this would be good for people, people with very different ideologies, very different points of view, to be able to have a choice of lots of different social media companies. You know, and one of the things that one of the things that we've encountered, I, I don't know if Jack has, but I certainly have, which is I've encountered a, a conservative critics of uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, who were concerned about deplatforming or censorship or other things uh, who have, these are the same people who 20 years ago were saying we want more curation, more moderation, you know, we want, we want to screen out the indeed decent content, uh, certainly the obscene content, but indecent content. And, and we want to empower uh, the companies to engage in that kind of uh, curation, both pre-hoc and post-hoc curation. And now they sort of their, their remedy is oddly uh, uh, to map to the common carriage model, which I think is nuts. They have no idea what common carriage Twitter is going to look like, but I have an idea. It's not going to be pretty. <laughs> All right. So this is amazing because I don't even have to do anything. You guys go to the next question I was going to ask, even without me trying. But since I have Professor Balking here, who was the person who taught me about First Amendment and Section 230, I would like to dive in a little bit deeper into the conservative, anti-conservative bias claims and just the current debate that's going on around it. Um, when we talk about platforms and how they moderate the content that they have on there, a lot of conservatives have been saying, including Senator Cruz, that they have um, an obligation to be neutral in what they do. Professor Balking, uh, would you agree with that? No, no, and I, I, I'm not quite sure that Senator Cruz is is being entirely candid in making these kinds of claims, because I know Senator Cruz was a big opponent of network neutrality. Uh, network neutrality is a claim that you can't discriminate in content or applications uh, in the broadband platforms, and so it would be very weird if he took the position that network neutrality is like a, um, a fairness doctrine for the internet, a position that many people have taken, and then turn right around and move up the, la- uh, the content layer and say, oh yeah, but we ought to have have something like network neutrality for a social media company. So I, I just don't take these remarks very seriously. I think that they're uh, they're pandering to a particular kind of base. Uh, but I do think Senator Cruz would probably be more interested in what I have to say about antitrust, because in fact, I think he and I would agree that it's really important that there be lots and lots of different moderation policies to choose from. And again, to repeat a point I just uh, made before, Facebook has tried to have a worldwide content moderation policy. That is, they, for a uh, reasons of scale and also because they have customers all around the world, they want to have a hate speech policy in the United States because they have a hate speech policy in Europe. And Europe, in turn, uh, tries to leverage the terms of service that Facebook has to get them to take down more illegal conduct that's illegal in Europe, but it's not illegal in the United States. So uh, if you are a conservative and you have a particular libertarian conception of free speech and you would like that to be protected in social media, it is in your interest to have lots and lots and lots of different social media companies, not single one. The common carriage model is a model that's that's designed for a relatively small number of players in an industry because of the nature of the industry. But we wanted something completely the opposite. So, so let me let me add to that that um, 
there's a huge, what I would call a fundamentally philosophical problem that I, I think is facing a lot of conservative commentators in particular, which is that, which is confirmation bias. Now, whenever you have uh, uh, media platforms or, or internet platforms that operate at the kind of scale that these platforms do, uh, if you set out to cherry pick uh, instances or stories or anecdotes to confirm your worst suspicions, you will find them. You will absolutely find them because there's everything. Everything is there, even in the curated... Also, they're doing it at scale, so they're going to make lots of mistakes. They're going to make lots of mistakes. Even if they were trying uh, to be stronger curators, they would make lots of mistakes. And this is, by the way, entirely predictable. And as I've said in a number of other contexts, uh, in every instance of curation, of any kind of curation policy, the complaints will always be threefold. One, you 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 censored the too much. Two, you censored too little. And three, you censored the wrong stuff. That will always be true, 100% uh, likelihood that that will happen, but the, but one of the things that was interesting to me, and I uh, when I was at the reboot conference out in California, was uh, talking to the religious broadcasters, uh, is that they had clearly cherry picked uh, instances of of proof that conservatives were being differentially uh, uh, kicked off of Twitter and Facebook, and and not only were their instances not really that decisive. I mean, sometimes it's temporary suspension or something else, but also I know that. Uh, uh, people on the left have complained to me again and again that when they quote instances of what they regard as hate speech or what they regard as racist speech or, 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 or violence inciting speech, their quotation of other people's comments in order to criticize them is what gets them deplatformed or censored. You know, the fact... Uh, the fact that they are actually trying to call the uh, hate speakers to account is getting them censored and not that the hate so-called hate speech itself and 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 what that uh, underscores i think is the fact that this curation problem is hugely uh, contextual it's hugely problematic and and that it brings me back to one of my favorite cases maybe jack sue which is fcc versus pacifica because uh, in in the george carlin seven dirty words case uh, they're quite careful to reproduce in u.s reports the entire text of carlin's uh, seven dirty words so you can hear all the seven dirty, or read all the seven dirty words in u.s reports which is a uh, uh, recognition the supreme court knew that in the context of U.S. reports, whatever this is, it's not neither obscene nor indecent. It absolutely could be reproduced. And I wanted to ask you, well, first of all, all that we've been discussing, to me, it's always, it has been so unusual that uh, Republicans or conservatives, however they identify themselves, who've always been, you know, like more pro-free speech. Not always, but in the last 20 years. Last 20 years. Um you know, and who want the baker to say no to baking the cake, um, now uh, go after private companies that are, you know, doing whatever they want because they are private. But I don't know, it's that kind of dichotomy that has been, um, I've been struggling with. I wanted to ask you another kind of legal, I guess, question. Some uh, some are claiming that uh, intermediaries, information intermediaries, or social media platforms are uh, town squares, are public forums, and hence different rules apply to them. Which, What are your thoughts on that? I want to distinguish two different ideas that you could be making. One is that they are creatures of the state, or that they are somehow public utilities which uh, are state actors. And then there's a different idea, which is that they are public in the sense that they're places where the public goes to talk to each other. These are actually two different notions of public. 
I think that the first idea that they are creatures of the state or that they are uh, they are state action uh, uh, is not going to work because then uh, their moderation policies have to conform to whatever the moderation policies of a public park would be, which means an enormous amount of abuse uh, would go on and people would find these spaces completely unusable and they would depart from them. Uh, because what it means to uh, speak in a public park, that is in real space, is very different than the kind of way that people speak to each other online, because it, it, we've all seen it. Right? So I just think that the state action doctrine is, is a bad idea, and any version of public utility which incorporates a vision of state action is a bad idea. But that doesn't mean that the second idea isn't a good one, which is these companies have responsibilities to the public because of the service they form, uh, they perform. They are what we might say the curators and agenda setters of modern public discourse. In that sense, they have they are in a long line of different companies. They just have a slightly different way of performing that function. So if you were to go to the 20th century, who would be playing that function? Well, it would be broadcasters, it would be newspapers, it would be magazines. They would be the people who would be setting the agenda for public discussion. The big difference is in the 21st century, instead of newspapers, which basically produced all their own content, these companies basically create a platform where lots of people provide their own content, and their job is basically to curate and moderate it. That is, they provide the news feed, they make it easy for you to contact other people, they, uh, they call out bad behavior, and they basically you know, sanction people who engage in bad behavior. So their function, their basic function is a little different, but the role they play in democracy is very similar. And that's to circle back to the, where we started this conversation with the idea of the fiduciary model is we want to... I always like to say, reprofessionalize these companies. We want them to take on certain public obligations and understand that their goal is to make it possible for people to talk to each other and to engage in the kind of discourse that's necessary for democracy. Reprofessionalize, I use it for this way. The one thing about the internet that people learned is it is like acid thrown on every set of professional norms that you can imagine. The internet just destroys professional norms. Everything it touches, it just dissolves. And so there's a sense in which what happened is very similar to what happened once you had the printing press. The printing press destroyed the Catholic Church's monopoly over the, uh, the structure of information in Europe, and it took a long time for it to, to reform. And when it reformed, it reformed under a different set of norms, a different set of notions of how information should be shared. We don't have the luxury of waiting 200 years for that to happen. Uh, the reprofessionalization of the internet has to happen now. And these companies, these large companies, have to be important players in doing it. Uh, they won't necessarily do it on their own unless there are regulatory solutions, which is one of the reasons why we should focus on consumer uh, protection, on privacy, information fiduciary models, and antitrust. It's really, really important. It's probably the most important job of law right now is to sort of encourage the reprofessionalization of the digital public sphere. So the only thing I would add to that, and I, I basically agree with everything that Jack has uh, underscored here, is that I think the companies properly, if they properly view their own roles, they should realize that they have strong incentives to, to lean in on, on these obligations. No pun intended. Yeah, they absolutely, uh, they have, 
you know, I, Cheryl, I hope you're listening to this. Uh, but yeah, they have an obligation to lean in uh, and not wait around for and not wait around for the dialogue to form without their participation. And certainly not to do not to say, well, just regulate us and then whatever the regulation is, we'll do it. I think that that is uh, uh, irresponsible and it's not very forward looking. And these companies pride themselves on being forward looking. So I think that they should do more. Uh, and my in my conversations and I talk to, you know, like all of us, I talk to different people at different times playing different roles. But I think there is some hunger for that, you know, for that, for, for a more visionary approach to this problem and not purely reactive. I'm not sure if that hunger sits deeply in Facebook. Uh, but I would like it to. I mean, and uh, I wish that uh, I hope that the leadership of Facebook and other companies look at this problem set as an opportunity to to build something that's uh, positive and forward looking uh, that sets expectations both, you know, for the general public in positive directions. Uh, I think it's possible to do that. You both kind of wrapped up and went back to where we started, but are there any final thoughts that you want us, our listeners to take away or any ideas that you want them to look into? Well, there's one thing I want them uh, to be aware of, and that's the fact that the information fiduciary model, that is the model that Mike and I have been talking about, that Jonathan Zittrain and I have been talking about, is perfectly consistent with the First Amendment. That is to say, there is a, uh, there is a history of First Amendment doctrine that allows the government to impose higher obligations on professionals than it does on non-professionals. So uh, the First Amendment, in fact, is not in opposition to what we're suggesting here. It's consistent with it. The same thing is true, by the way, with antitrust regulation. This is what Justice Black, Hugo Black, the great First Amendment uh, justice, the great defender of an absolute conception of the First Amendment, that's what he said in uh, Associated Press. And so it's really important that these kinds of reforms are not uh, in, uh, in conflict with the First Amendment. They are, in fact, promoting the values of the First Amendment. So I would add, I mean, I've, I've, I've written this book, The Splinters of Our Discontent, which uh, actually- Available in five bookstores. Available on Amazon right yeah. now. You can absolutely <laughs> order it right now, uh, in which uh, I present a lot of these ideas, uh, uh, certainly the ideas about information fiduciaries and all the ways that those ideas can play out. Uh, but I also recommend, I, I also rec recommend my book because it, it actually lists, it cites Jack's writing on this stuff, which is generally publicly available. Uh, so that if you want to dig in deep and sort of figure out how well you understand, if you're a lawyer, a law student, a policymaker, a Hill staffer, and you want to, uh, you know, drill down and really understand the legal basis of this stuff, you can't find a better source material than Jack's uh, prolific writings on this material. And let me just add one other thing, which is that Jack uh, and and and, my, and uh, Sandy Levinson have this other great book out, which is about uh, d democracy and dysfunction, which I also recommend uh, really to everybody because I think it's quite readable on a separate set of topics, but that's not wholly unrelated to these. Thank you very much. We're going to plug in, we're going to leave a link to your book and other work that you've done on this issue and obviously Professor Balkin's writings. Please check out the Yale Information Society Project's website and all the wonderful work the fellows do there. A lot of great um, experts in this field are uh, Professor Balkin's uh, mentees or people who were associated with ISB, including Mike who was a fellow at the SP, I believe, Kate Klonick, a lot of other uh, people in this space. And I really hope you guys will be back together or separately to talk more about this because these issues are not going away and they're definitely going to be at the, at the center of attention for years to come. 
Thank uh, you very much. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Uh, please leave us a review. You can find us on every single platform that you listen to your podcasts on. If you can't find us on the platform you're listening to podcasts on, let me know and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.